the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. I was speaking with a friend, a smart political type in D.C., and we were discussing what everyone is discussing, the raid at Mar-a-Lago. There are, as I was postulating yesterday, three lanes here legally and three lanes here politically. As far as I can tell, legally, lane one, there really is something criminal to be found in the trove of documents seized by the Department of Justice and the FBI. Lane two, there may be something criminal to be found and we're on or the FBI and the DOJ is on a fishing expedition. Or lane three, this was simple and simply intimidation and perhaps a negotiation strategy and an attempt to embarrass and diminish the support for Donald Trump. Trump, which gets us weirdly into the political considerations, also with what I think reveal three lanes. It asked, what were the political considerations of engaging in such a novel or unprecedented action of such scope and sweep? All very high risk. Lane one, this will weaken, vitiate support for Donald Trump and take a bite out of him and his potential future endeavors. Lane two, this will create more sympathy for him because he's being brutalized and victimized by an overreaching Department of Justice and Democratic Party. Lane three, this will cause an overreaction by Trump supporters, thus providing and proving the narrative that Trump supporters are violent insurrectionists and all the better if they are white. We might call this a Reichstag strategy, whereby, as in Germany, a scapegoat was created to justify emergency and A, if not unconstitutional, power grabs and consolidations. All of these, of course, as I say, are high risk, and none of this comes with any predictable or certain outcome. Hence the phrase playing with fire, and why the fire analogy works so well. The one lane that does not exist for these pyromaniacs is doing nothing, letting normal, legal, and judicial and political processes play themselves out. Winning an election governing and taking your case to the American people while letting the opposing the opposing party try and do the same. Those options were never on the table for Donald Trump's presidency. Those options were self-renounced by the Democrats just about the time of Donald Trump's election in 2016. Immediately. After all, the Democrats had to claim and go on a four-year campaign to try and prove that Donald Trump was not legitimately elected and thus he was an illegitimate president. Illegitimate president. Those were the words. That was the phrase used by Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and Jimmy Carter and others, a lot of others. From that line of uh, attack came not my president. From that line of attack came calls for impeachment as early as the same month he was sworn into office. From that line of attack came boycotting his inauguration. From that line of attack came charges of racism and bigotry. From that line of attack came a special counsel investigation and two impeachments. And the interesting thing is that none of it worked until 2020 and the election of 2020 when, taking just for the sake of argument the Democrats' own narrative in full— 
the election was simply fair and square with no shenanigans, and their guy won. You put everything the Democrats and the corporate media threw against Trump and Republicans, including the censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story and the attacks over COVID mitigation responses. It's really quite amazing to think Republicans anywhere could ever win anything or did win anything in 2020. If you are a Democrat, though, you realize it took all this, all of it and more to take Donald Trump down. The four-year narrative was the campaign. The media was the opposition and the message. So why this raid and why now, given all the risks associated with and surrounding it, three months before another election? Democrats don't quite operate the way Republicans do because they don't have to. Why don't they have to? Because no matter what they do, they will have an amen chorus of support and echo chamber in elite culture, corporate culture, and the media. To whip. One of a million examples. How many times was the media happy to promote Adam Schiff saying he or the Democrats had the goods, a smoking gun, irrefutable proof of Trump's illegal behavior, only to never have it revealed, only to have him keep broadcasting that month in and month out, year in and year out, never producing the goods. And all those other calls based on anonymous sources that the walls were closing in. Always the walls were closing in on the Trump presidency, though they never did. So my friend I was talking to and I started thinking human nature and foible. And when you go back to thinking about foibles, what is the most obvious one or at least the first one most of us are taught? Hubris. Pride. We can define this as one encyclopedia does as a crime of power. Hubris is the extreme pride or self-confidence of an individual character. Hubris is arrogance in word, deed, and thought. And what does it lead to? An interesting word, nemesis. Now, most of us think of nemesis as meaning an enemy, a bete noire. That is not what its original meaning was. In Greek, nemesis was the goddess of vengeance. Vengeance, retribution, payback. Aristotle writes that this form of practice is the doing and saying of things at which the victim incurs shame, not in order that one may achieve anything other than what is done, but simply to get pleasure out of it, pleasure from someone else's shame. Aristotle puts it specifically in his rhetoric, not to obtain any other advantage for oneself besides the performance of the act, but for one's own pleasure, for retaliation is not insult, but punishment. The cause of the pleasure felt by those who insult is the idea that in ill-treating others, they are more fully showing superiority. You could call it bullying if you wanted to. Donald Trump and the Republicans, you see, did something that required revenge. Nemesis. They beat Hillary Clinton. Deplorable people beat the entitled and the elites. This is not just part of Greek tragedy. It's also part of Roman classic literature. Horace, the Roman poet, opens his third ode this way, Odi Profanum Vulgus. I hate the vulgar crowd. You see pretty quickly in the Democratic Party this notion of hating the vulgar crowd. America first or making America great again or just the ornate style Donald Trump's businesses represent. This is all very vulgar to the Democrats. Truckers, cowboys, food servers, hairstylists, oil riggers, wildcatters, pipe fitters, the non-college ed- educated, those that think America is better than Europe. We are all abominable to the Wellesley Yale crowd. We are all abominated by the San Francisco Manhattan sophisticates. They dine maskless. 
served by those forced to mask when the restaurants are open. For when they are not, we dine not at all. They dine at the fanciest restaurants in America in private parties. We go without self-improvement or display. They sneak into privately opened salons just for themselves. We go without work and our kids go without school. They have no problem working from home and running their paper and computer businesses while their private schools are open and while they can afford babysitters and tutors that the rest of the country cannot during such things as shutdowns. We are the vulgar and they are the elite and we have no business beating them ever or a right to govern them ever or a right to question them ever. And they will use any means necessary, including the legal system, to defeat us politically, maintain power and exact revenge or vengeance whenever we do pull out a win or victory. And as with any hubristic person, any means will do. By any means necessary, remember that phrase, which works well as a mode of operational success, especially if you flirt with or embrace political and economic doctrines that substantiate concepts like by any means necessary, which is Marx and Lenin doctrines. That phrase, by any means necessary, comes from the Marxist writer Franz Fanon. Many of you know his work, The Wretched of the War of the Earth, which justifies terrorism. And it was adopted, that phrase, by revolutionaries everywhere, from Malcolm X to Che Guevara. And it circles back to our discussion yesterday about how the autocrat or autocratic personality in politics does not care about process, only outcome by any means necessary, is the cognate of the ends being justified by the means. And it can never stop. What most people who work for a living want is simply peace, a less difficult life, to be left alone. Think how hard life is and has become for your typical American. Be he a truck driver, police officer, you name it. What we want is peace, peace and an even playing field. Fairness. But that can never obtain with the new left in America, for there is another Marxist concept at play here as well. And it's the notion of the permanent revolution, defined by Karl Marx as, quote, the interest and task to make the revolution permanent until all the more or less propertied classes have been driven from their ruling positions, until the proletariat has conquered state power, and until the association of the proletarians has progressed sufficiently far, close quote. And so... Any engine of effort will do, so long as it never stops. But still, all, there are the old verities that lay deep within most of us, where the feeling that something is not quite right cannot be completely suppressed. Thus, they will change language and the definitions of things. Thus, they will use everything in their power to achieve total control. You saw a glimpse of it during COVID, and you see it now with the deployment of the Department of Justice, just as you saw it with the same Democrat, uh, excuse me, the same Department of Justice attacking the vulgar crowd, consisting of parents at school board meetings, challenging Marxist notions of race and gender in their publicly funded curricula and being denounced as enemies of the state, enemies of the revolution, if you will, also known as domestic terrorists. Dennis Prager likes to point out that justice is not the same thing as revenge, and to confuse the two is to disgrace the notion of justice. You can do this even with something called a department of justice, just as you can change the meaning of a vaccine or a recession, or you could change the meaning and definition of man or woman. Aparokalia, 
That's the Greek word for vulgar. It translates into the absence or lack in things beautiful. Democrats today, using any means necessary, think they can bring heaven down to earth in changing, revolutionizing, transitioning and transforming everything from our human nature and sex to our energy supply and country. There is nothing more hubristic than that, seeing yourself as being as God or gods. And when it doesn't work, that's when hubris yields to nemesis, vengeance. And that's why scapegoats are needed in order to satisfy and animate the revenge. As for us, we'll continue to think things beautiful are the hard-fought and won American Revolution and what it yielded. The most amount of freedom and equality any society has ever known. The country people risk their lives trying to get to and live in. The last best hope of Earth. And we shall remember, as Oliver Wendell Holmes put it, the mode in which the inevitable comes to pass is effort. So as the Democrats engage in hubris, we will persist and persist and persist through this crisis. And as we think of this crisis, let's remember what Thomas Paine wrote in The American Crisis. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us. That the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be as highly rated. I'm Seth Leapson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. For those of you looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for the investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. They are offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence to prove firm. It's run by really good people, as I say. They are investors doing very well by doing good for others, and you can be as well. Check them out at investyrefi.com, the word invest, the letter Y, and then refy.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. They're a local company. You can go visit them. And uh, they, will, uh, they won't give you a sales pitch. They'll just uh, talk to you about what it is that they do and let it speak for itself. One of the interesting things, I'm going to interview, uh, we're going to have uh, Benjamin Weingarten joining us in just a few minutes. He has a great piece, maybe the best piece I've seen on all this over at Newsweek. He's going to join us shortly. But one of the interesting things I've seen, and it gives you a reading of the room's temperature that we are in right now, is that even some of the more, shall we say, careful or temperamentally conservative outlets are using the same kinds of language Ben Weingarten is using or that I just used in my monologue. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, it's conservative – but it's what we call, I don't know, what would you call it? Cautious conservatism, right? Uh, maybe that's, that's too stinting. But, um, yeah, uh, you, you, you take my point. There's a different temperament of conservatism at the Wall Street Journal editorial board. You know what I mean. And they're talking the same way we are over this. 
They have an editorial, an unsigned editorial, that says the FBI search on Mr. Trump suggests that Mr. Garland may be committed to pursuing and indicting Mr. Trump. If so, he is taking the country on a perilous road. There is much ruin in a nation, but no one should want to test the limits of that ruin in America. What are they getting at when they say such things? What is it they're getting at? You know what they're getting at. Why would you want to test the stressors that this country is already plagued with? I mean, we are dry tinderwood right now as a country. You know, if COVID and BLM didn't do us in and the shenanigans out of 2020 didn't, uh, the, the election of 2020 didn't do us in and the double impeachments didn't do us in and the war in Ukraine, all kinds of economic problems that we're going through right now, all while we're being told, don't trust your own two eyes, listen to us, we the administration, and we will redefine the language for you as we talk about the things you aren't seeing or aren't supposed to see. What do you think the Wall Street Journal editorial, the conservative, the cautious Wall Street Journal is talking about when they say Mr. Garland is going down a perilous road? What is a perilous road? Danger. What is the danger? It's not that Merrick Garland will be impeached. It's not that Merrick Garland will lose his law license. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about upending a piece that we've all been doing our very darn near best to maintain in difficult times with a series of oppressions, repressions, and a series of playing games with legitimate political opposition and calling that legitimate political opposition extremist at best, white supremacist, racist, fascist at worst. It's a miracle and a credit to the American people, they have been willing to put up with this temperament so long and so well. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It says something good about the foundations of America, and it says something good about the American people. But you can't keep pushing forever. Down that road lies, as the Wall Street Journal says, and as I think most conservative commentators are now saying, and even... Hat tip to Andrew Cuomo, where it is well-deserved here, I think. Down that way lays a lot of danger. Danger that the Democrats are pushing and pushing and pushing us towards. Just as they did in 1860. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight to bring back our old friend Benjamin Weingarten, one of the best writers out there, one of the best analysts. He's a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research. He's a fellow at the Claremont Institute, senior contributor to The Federalist. I want to remind people, he's also the author of a great book, American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party has a really strong and good piece up at Newsweek. FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid presents a time for choosing the regime or America. Ben Weingarten, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Seth, thanks so much for having me. And, you know, Elon Omar had a pretty close call in the primary last night. Uh, didn't quite get all the way to a loss, but 
uh, says something, I think, about where we are. Yeah, I was going to ask you about it, actually. I'm glad you brought it up. I was watching a video of uh, the mayor of Minneapolis, Mayor, mayor Frey. He had some very unkind words for her, probably um, all-deserved. And, yeah, it looked like it was about a two-point race, wasn't it? Something like that. Two-percentage point difference at the end of the day, huh? Remarkable. And it, it speaks to the fact that even in the bluest of blue locales, and, and this is a trend, of course, we see it with the Chesa Boudin recall in San Francisco. We see it with a potential recall of his uh, L.A. counterpart as well, that there are limits to the destructiveness of progressive policy such that even in a place like Minneapolis, people can only tolerate so much in terms of the degradation of their everyday life. That's right. And this was a city that was kind of ground zero, or at least uh, ground zero for the centrifugal force that became the Black Lives Matter uh, movement of protests and riots throughout 2020. And the mayor there is backtracking on, you know, all these calls that Ilan Omar has been calling for, which is the defund defunding of the police. I mean, You look at the DAs you're talking about, you look at some of these other prosecutors and mayors across the country. I mean, the the sad thing is it didn't have to go this way. It didn't have to get this far. They were so anxious to fight off conservatism or even just common sense policies that they entered into the field of and realm of never never land when it came to law enforcement. And it's come back to bite them. And they're realizing, you know, we're not so wrong. They just can't admit it. That's right. And you know, to segue into probably what you and your listeners really want to talk about, which is this Mar-a-Lago raid and the fallout associated with it, the two sides of the coin that make this really breathtaking are the lack of law enforcement such that innocent bystanders uh, have been reduced to praying that they don't get mugged and attacked in these cities. They're left defenseless because of these lenient and then, frankly, anti-cop approaches to, quote-unquote, law enforcement and justice in these locales. But the other side of it is that at the highest levels, political opponents of the regime are targeted to an extra-legal, up to illegal uh, effect here. So on the one hand, it's over-enforcement to the nth degree against political foes of the regime. On the other hand, there is no policing in cities in blue cities across the country. That's where we are today. It's a devastating double standard for the American people, for our life and liberty. And, of course, it's it's the smallest minorities in this country who get crushed as a consequence of it. That's right. And it's anarchy. Anarchy is defined almost exclusively as the absence of a rule of law or a consistent rule of law. And that's what we're seeing. That's what you just outlined, which is why I wanted to open my questioning on your column with you uh, you use the word regime. You used it a few moments ago. You use it in your piece. I defended the use of the word regime on the radio yesterday in a monologue, but I'd love you to explain why why that is precisely the right word to be using right now. Well, I think it perfectly describes uh, this duality in the country of the, the ruling class and those tens of millions of us unfortunate enough to be ruled by them. They have changed the regime in a classical sense in terms of we're not a republic anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are. I'm not sure how you would describe what system we have today. You could call it an oligarchy. uh, You can call it 
you know, it's not an aristocracy because I don't consider these people elite uh, in, in, in any true sense. Uh, but what we have is a system where it's one rule for the rulers and another rule for all of us. And it's been an ideological takeover within every single influential institution in our country. They close ranks. They defend and protect themselves only and describe themselves as democracy as if to somehow legitimize them. I actually think it's sort of an illegitimate tell when you have these people who are acting like tin pot tyrants referencing democracy. Because, of course, it's socialists and communist regimes that always try to drape themselves in democracy. Yeah, so that's right. That no, that's right. And they have, they have to a fare thee well, been going through the dictionary and redefining all kinds of... Let me take a quick uh, commercial break. We will be right back with more from Ben Weingarten. You want to, if not, read his book, read his column over at Newsweek, newsweek.com. The Mar-a-Lago uh, raid presents a time for choosing... Uh, regime in uh, uh, time for choosing the regime or America. I'm Seth. He's Ben, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Ben Weingarten is our guest. He is a fellow at the Claremont Institute. He is the author of American Ingrate, Ilan Omar, and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Great piece up at Newsweek. FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid presents a time for choosing the regime. Or America. Uh, Ben, the other side of it, we talked about the regime part, the other side, the time for choosing. You say we have chosen wrong for so long. We're in a new era, and it's an era that was brought to us by the progressive left. And we, I think, need to figure out um, that we are in a new era. We need to figure out what time it is. We need to figure out how to fight the new conditions that have been thrust upon us. That's what you're getting at, isn't it? I am. And I think on the one hand, we woke up the next day after that raid in what would appear to be a different country. But on the other hand, even though this was an unprecedented act, I think an act of intimidation, I think an, an, an act that was consciously quite public, even though there's been a lot of spinning in the media recently, that they really wanted this to be a quiet hush-hush operation. That is the FBI here. I, I think it was Everyone knew, of course, that this would be the story and the thing that dominates headlines and uh, public discourse and probably will be for weeks or months to come. Uh, I think this was a show of force, a show of naked intimidation that was unique and novel in a terrible sense. But by the same token, this is just the natural progression in terms of a series of acts just like this that we've seen exposed in terms of the utter rot and corruption of our administrative state broadly, but our deep state as the tip of the spear. And it's been the national security intelligence and law enforcement apparatus that have been at the heart of every single effort to pursue Donald Trump, those around him, up to and including now basically half the country that's been targeted as domestic violent extremists or their aiders, abettors, and enablers, essentially. So on the one hand, this is a uniquely despicable, terrible, and disturbing act in American history. And we're in a different country today. But on the other hand, I think this was just a logical next step leading up to what I now 100 percent believe will be an indictment of President Trump. And to your point, it does raise the question of what do you do in a situation, as I kind of argue in this article, where all of your institutions have been turned against their own missions and then, of course, against the tens of millions of Americans that they're supposed to serve. But obviously, the first thing is recognizing the problem. 
And part of the problem that you see is the lack of recognition on behalf of our legislators who are either cowed or ignorant and aren't speaking up about this. This should be the story. The story is your your state, your security state, has been weaponized against you. Anyone who dares dissent against them is cast as a potential terrorist and will have every possible force sicked on them. You don't have you're not living in a free country with anything remotely resembling liberty and justice in a scenario like that. And so when you have most of the Republicans in both the House and Senate who are quiet about this, it speaks volumes about how far we need to go. And that obviously the answer is not going to be from those currently in Washington, D.C., to fix the problems that have festered under their purported rule. Ben, let me ask you this. Thank you for that. Let me ask you this, because for certain there were political considerations. There had to have been in a case like this, in a, in a search and seizure operation like this. Um, do you think, yes, given the fact they have called Trump supporters white supremacists, they have called Trump a racist, they have called parents fighting Marxism in their schools domestic terrorists, they have tried to pass legislation banning guns. They have uh, only earlier this week uh, decided to hire 87,000 new IRS agents. You read this room, so to speak, Ben. Do you think they're trying to provoke an incident, a Reichstag-type incident from Trump supporters so that they can really say, see, this is what – I mean, an act like this seems to have very little political payoff unless they have something greatly uh, damaging on Donald Trump, which I just think we would have known by now if they did. It just seems after all the investigations, the, the, the idea that they would come up with something novel and big beggars, beggars the imagination or, or, or fuddles the imagination. Do you think they're trying to provoke an incident? Well, two, two quick points there. I mean, first, we're talking about the most investigated and spied upon person probably in American probably. history. And yeah. there's nothing there. Yeah. Six years into all this which is remarkable, yep. for one. Number two, as you're ticking off these abuses and assaults, I mean, it really reads like the Declaration of Independence. And every year when you go back and read that Declaration of Independence, you see the very same things happening now with our current leaders. But to your point about the, the pro- pro- provocative aspect of this, there are a whole slew of articles now out there, and I tweeted about one of these today, referencing one of the key players in both Russiagate and then post-Russiagate media propaganda campaigns associated with Fusion, GPS, the Steele dossier, and beyond, Daniel Jones, the former Feinstein staffer, is quoted, his group, as having uncovered all of this rhetoric on online message boards, social media, of quote-unquote right-wing violent extremists out there calling for the head of the, the magistrate judge who was responsible for executing, signing off on this search warrant. So, I I let the facts speak for themselves in terms of what the media is spinning about this. They want they their whole singular narrative is to make the case that any of their critics are not only racist and bigots, but dangerous to the republic. They have said in their national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which I always go back to as sort of the defining document Mm -hmm. for understanding their worldview and actions, that it's anti-authority. Uh, or anti-institutional mm-hmm. critics, essentially, who pose the most lethal threat to the homeland of the domestic violent extremist threat and or a bigot. And, yep. of course, they equate conservatism with bigotry. Yep. So it's really one and the same as the anti-authority part of the equation. So they engage in these acts. Those who call them out, their critics, then, are cast as being anti-authority, anti-government, anti-institutional. And that's the greatest threat that we face. 
So they're trying to gin up the idea that their critics are domestic violent extremists. And then they point to January 6th, or maybe they would have pointed to the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping right. plot had right. it not been shown to be right. entrapment, of course. And so it does appear certainly that they want to push as far as they can this narrative. And if there was violence, let's put it this way, it would serve their narrative and they would exploit it to the hilt. I think they'll exploit it to the hilt anyway, but certainly it's consistent with everything they gin up. You know, they say that these people pose the greatest threat to the homeland. So if there's any action whatsoever, of course, they're going to use it to further crack down, as they did with January 6th. Flannery O'Connor, the novelist, said you have to push back as hard against the age as it pushes against you. Ben, I'm looking forward to talking more with you uh, as we go through this and as we figure this thing out. But, yes, we all need to take a page from Flannery O'Connor and, of course, from what you recommend in your Newsweek pieces. Well, Ben Weingarten, always good checking in with you. Thank you for what you do and who you are. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You betcha. God bless. I'm Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I, um, I, I've always thought of our lineup here at Salem as kind of a faculty that I'm privileged to be part of. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you go into the classroom of Seb Gorka, you go in the classroom of Dennis Prager, you can take classes here. And uh, in that vein, it's it's good to reference other professors and recommend that you go to their lectures from time to time. In that vein, I want you to listen to Dennis Prager's interview with Alan Dershowitz today, if you missed it. One of the best interviews. I, I've interviewed Alan. He's interviewed Alan. A lot of us have heard Alan over the years. It's the best I've ever heard, and it's um, the most impactful. And Alan says something that I have been thinking a long time, and maybe I've said once or twice before, I don't know. It doesn't come up that often. But Alan Dershowitz was making the point. He said, I am a fan of what about-ism. And what he was getting at in saying that is, without what about-ism, you have no basis to compare the precedent of how to handle something when it comes up, whether it is a criminal statute or a civil statute. And how the vic- how the um, defendants have been treated in the past should serve as guide to how they will be treated in the future. There is a process of precedent to all these things. So when we say, what about X, Hillary Clinton, Sandy Berger, Jim Comey, any number of Democrats who fell afoul of these very same allegations Donald Trump has supposedly run afoul from, it is important to point out that they were treated very, 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 very differently because that is the guide to how you are supposed to treat these statutes and laws and processes against everyone if you live in a world with equal justice under law. And I think at the end of the day, the one thing with all our differences in America that does beat, I've said this before, I still believe it, that does beat in the breast of every American is the fundamental sense of fairness, a fundamental sense of fairness Once that's lost, we're all lost. We're all lost. Anyway, thanks for spending some of your time with us this afternoon. I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all, and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.